Hey, a quick note about this episode. First of all, you're going to notice that I am not actually the interviewer. The interviewer for this episode is Kristen Berman, who is my friend and founder of co-founder of Irrational Labs, which is a behavioral science firm out of Silicon Valley. And they've worked with a number of different companies. In this particular interview, Kristen is interviewing Logan Yuri, who just came out with a book called How to Not Die Alone. And Logan is a behavioral scientist and a relationship expert. And what I really like about this episode is the application of behavioral science to dating and relationships. And as you all know, I'm a data freak and I'm kind of a geek when it comes to statistics and numbers and actually determining what works when it comes to dating and relationships. So I think you're going to enjoy this episode as much as I did and stay tuned at the end for another announcement. Okay, we start. Let's do it. Great. Okay, I'm going to start with an, an introduction to Logan, and then we'll kind of rewind about how Logan and I know each other because it is a fun story. And then we're going to dive right into it um, and really just pull out all those insights on dating from Logan. Um, for those of you who don't know, her book launched yesterday, How Not to Die Alone. Of course, we will put a link in the uh, chat for you to buy it, but um, I highly recommend it. Um, so Logan is a behavioral scientist turned dating coach. She's the author of How Not to Die Alone, which came out yesterday and is an Amazon bestseller. She studied psychology at Harvard and now works as the director of relationship scientist, as director of relationship science at the dating app Hinge, where she leads a research team dedicated to helping people find love. Um, so I couldn't be more excited to have um, this chance to chat with Logan. Um, also, Logan and I are friends. We're, we're very good friends. We met at Google. Um, she and I both helped uh, start their behavioral science group there and um, really have kind of uh, not merged professional, but also personal lives. And we live together. Um, fun fact. Uh, so Logan moved into a community uh, called Radish. There are 14 of us here. And um, I think kind of the premise of our community is one of the same as the premises of Logan's research and her life's work is that relationships matter. Um, so I don't know if you guys know, there's a nice study out of Harvard, um, kind of the longest uh, study of, of uh, humans on, on what drives our happiness. And the main finding is that relationships actually um, make us happier and healthier. So people, if you have a relationship at the age 50, you're more likely to be healthy at the age of 80. <clears throat> and so we live with 14 people really under that, that premise of why don't we design our lives around relationships? But uh, Logan is the expert in how do you design your life around a romantic relationship in a way that will make you happier. So Logan, anything to add to that? No, that's great. Yeah, thank you for doing this with me. It was exciting to see how many people signed up. I think there's always this question of, do people want to talk about their dating life at 11 a.m. Pacific time on a Wednesday? And, you know, is this professional enough? And is this something that Irrational Labs can do? But I think whenever I've been in those experiences, the answer is always yes. People want to talk about their love lives. People, This is often the biggest, most pressing issue for people. And so we're really glad that you are taking this hour to do this with us. And Kristen, thanks for hosting. Yeah, for sure. And um, kind of, we're going to leave time for questions. So folks just like get in the back of your head, the question that you want to ask, pop it in the chat, and I will frantically try to, to get to them um, at the end. But for now, I'm going to kick off with kind of one, you know, behavioral science in general is kind of about the mistakes that people make. Uh, and so Logan, what is one mistake that single people make consistently? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just start off with the background of my philosophy on all this. And so, right. So Kristen and I worked together back in 2013 um, on the Irrational Labs team at Google. And of course, we we're taking these academic insights from the field of behavioral science and applying them to Google products and Google marketing. At the same time, I was single. And I, I think I recall that Kristen was single as well. We had some really epic car rides where we would talk about our love lives. And so 
I thought to myself, I have this information about how people make decisions. Meanwhile, I'm single, I'm on Tinder, I'm swiping six hours a night, I'm going on eight and a half dates per week, and it's not working out. And eventually I thought, how can I combine these two interests of mine, dating and relationships and behavioral science, and turn them into a way to help people. And so that's what I've been doing for the last few years. That's what How to Not Die Alone is about. That's what my my work at Hinge is about. And so the whole philosophy there is that great relationships are the culmination of a series of great decisions and that you make good decisions along the way and it propels you into this great love story and you make bad decisions and you just repeat your bad habits and you you know wind up alone or not in the relationship that you want to be. And so where I started the work and where I started my book is this idea of dating blind spots. And so these are patterns of behavior that hold us back from finding love, but most importantly, that we can't see on our own. And as people worked with me in the dating coaching capacity, they came from all different backgrounds, orientations, identities, class, everything. But I noticed that there was these three distinct buckets that a lot of them fit into. And I have organized that into a framework called the three dating tendencies. And so basically each tendency has a specific dating blind spot, and it's usually around unrealistic expectations. And so the first one is that um, the romanticizer, and they have unrealistic expectations of relationships. And so these are the people, or maybe you're one of them who says, um, you know, love will find me. I don't want to put effort into love. Um, Prince Charming or Princess Ariel will find me and we'll have our love story. This person believes in soulmates and they think that once they find their person, love is going to be effortless. And that's the main issue is that they aren't willing to put in the effort into finding love or into making a great relationship work. And so they're constantly disappointed by the realities of relationships. The second one is called the maximizer. And I know many of my dating dating coaching clients are this. I bet a lot of people on the call are this. These are the people who feel like life is a research problem. You can research your way to the best answer. And it's about the pursuit of the objective right decision. And they feel like, could I be 5% happier with a different girlfriend? Could I be with someone who's 5% hotter, 5% more ambitious, right? They're always trying to optimize. And this is in contrast to what we know as the satisficer. The person who is more focused on how they, or let me say it this way, the satisficer who sets expectations, they're not settling, but when they find someone or something that meets their expectations, then they invest in it. And what we know is that satisficers in general tend to be happier about their decisions than maximizers because maximizers are always wondering what if, and satisficers uh, are really great at making a decision and then moving on. And so it's not about making the objective right decision. It's about how you feel about your decision. And then finally, we have the hesitator. They have unrealistic expectations of themselves. These are the people who say, I'll be ready to date when, dot, 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 when I lose 10 pounds, when I have a more impressive job, when I figure my life out. And they have this vision in their mind that one day they'll wake up and be so ready for dating. And that's just not the case. And they're underestimating the opportunity cost of getting better at dating because dating is a skill and of learning what type of person they want to be with, because we should all be dating like scientists. And it is a process of experimentation. And these people are, are missing out on the chance to do that. And so my advice or hesitators is, um, you know, get out there and start dating. And in the book, I have a checklist that's basically using tools from behavioral science to actually motivate them to take the plunge and start dating. Nice. That's great. And I love the term dating yeah. like scientists. So does this mean yeah. that we, um, we do experiments on different people or how, when you say dating like scientists, um, how could this look, look for folks? Does it mean well, you're Kristen, I, I think you've done some interesting dating experiments, but I can tell you about what it means to me. And so to me, Dating like a scientist is being more open-minded about who you go out with, being more open-minded about the type of person who could make you happy long-term, and also just being a bit humble. I think one of the best things about scientists is that they don't say, I have a gut feeling and we're going to go through that. And Kristen, I know in the applied world of behavioral science, you know, we, we sometimes encounter product managers who are that way. And then we say, yes, but let's experiment. And so we have the same idea here. And so you might have a gut instinct about who your type is, but why not experiment with that? And how might you experiment with that? And so the humility piece is, and I say this in the book in kind of a dramatic way, but I I want to prompt people to think about it. I have a chapter called, you think you know what you want, but you're wrong. And the idea here is that we often don't know the type of person who will make us happiest long-term. 
And if you want to date like a scientist, why don't you expand your filters, expand the type of people that you go out with and actually test how different people make you feel. And you may be very well surprised by the type of person who ends up making you happiest long-term. And in my research, talking to happy couples, many of them said, I wouldn't have seen this person on the dating app. Or if I had seen this person just their resume, I I would have said, oh, they're not the right fit for me because of height or job or different education. But in the end, this is the person that I chose. And so really, I encourage people to be more open-minded with their filters and more open-minded with who they actually go on dates with. That's great. Yeah. I think one of the main principles of behavioral science is just don't trust your intuition. So it seems like in maybe dating, we're trusting our intuition about the person that we're meant to be with a little bit um, too, uh, too much. Do you, you have a, a nice phrase, um, called fuck the spark. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? And maybe in relationship to this, this idea of, of thinking that, you know, the right person to be with, um, and how that all plays out. Yeah. So it's funny. I feel like this fuck the spark thing has been one of the most memorable pieces of the book. And maybe that's just because it has a fun curse word in it. But, um, yeah, the idea of fuck the spark is that, I was seeing people make a lot of mistakes around why they were saying yes or no to second dates with people. And so our our mutual mentor and friend, Dan Ariely, he's had this idea for a long time where he says um, there should be a dating app where you have to go in at least two dates with the people because that way you're giving a chance to certain people who just aren't that charming on the first date and that lots of people miss out because they are wonderful humans who would be great long-term partners, but they just don't give you that feeling on the first date. And so that inspired both Fuck the Spark and another chapter called Make the Second Date the Default. And so the idea here is that there's three main myths around the spark. And I've really come to hate the spark, think of it as my nemesis. And I have so many dating coaching clients who call me and say, I went out with the guy. He was great. We had a really fun time, super good date, but I'm not going to see him again. Then I say, why? That's a little surprising. And then they say, oh, I just didn't feel the spark. And so now let me, let me bust those three myths around the spark. So the first one is that the spark cannot grow over time. And that's just not true. We know from research about happy couples that only 11% of them claim to have experienced love at first sight. We also know from the mere exposure effect that oftentimes somebody can grow on us, right? The more times we're exposed to them, oftentimes the more time we like them. It's also really cool research from Paul Eastwick around um, unique value versus mate value and how in the beginning we can all tell who the same, you know, if we had a group of 100 people, we would all say that the same, let's say five were the hottest. But after spending time with each of them and Uh, They grow on us in a different way, and we wouldn't have the same consensus. And so the first myth is that the spark doesn't grow over time. We know that that's not true. And lots of people marry someone from work, marry someone who lives in their sophomore dorm, really somebody who you see over time. The second myth is that if you feel the spark, it's a good thing. And I can tell you from personal experience that that's absolutely not true. Some people are just very sparky, and they give the spark to a lot of people. And this might be because they're really attractive or they're really charming, or very often they're very narcissistic and they're sort of playing a game with you where they're not actually interested in you, but they're interested in getting you to like them. And also, if we want to dive into attachment theory, there's a lot of research that people confuse anxiety for chemistry. So what you're feeling is that unknown sensation of, will they call me back? You're not actually feeling a connection. And so sometimes the spark is a bad thing. And the third one is that if you feel the spark, then the relationship is viable. And that's just not true. A lot of times couples, especially those romanticizers, they get very caught up in the how we met and they focus on, oh, we had this amazing story and it was this meet cute. But if you really think about the duration of a relationship, your how we met is like 0.01% of the time you're going to be together. And don't just stay in a relationship because you had this really cute, sparky, how we met story. And so my advice is, Go for the slow burn, go for the person who may not be initially charming, but is going to be a great long-term partner and a way to do that. And to set a rule of thumb for yourself is to commit to going on second dates because you're not going to let these diamond in the rough slow burns escape, escape your, your view. Logan, I don't know if I've ever told you, I I asked um, Dan Ariely for dating advice once, and he basically told me this, but in a more confusing way where... I was like, he's like, you know, it's, it's going to be tough because you have a characteristic that, that you're outstanding, you know, your best characteristic just shows up much later on. Like he's like, your adventure. He was saying that you're the slow burn. 
Yeah. It's like, you're, it's just going to, it's going to take a while for people. So, but it it is interesting. It is an interesting thing that you, you know, if, if you are somebody maybe who has a characteristic that is going to make a long-term relationship successful, that may not be something that shows up on the first date. And so even while we're looking for that in other people for it to show up, even in ourselves, we may not be showing up our best characteristic on the first date. Um, I didn't take it as personally. I just was reflecting a lot on it. Yeah. I I love that story. I absolutely thought that you were, that he was going to say to you, Kristen, you're uh, writing people off too early, but he was really telling you that, that you're not that sparky and that you're the slow burn. But I mean, I, I find you very charismatic. And I think when you really, tu- when you really tune into some, I, I'm surprised to hear that you're a slow burn, but you know, what that made me think is that if we all adopt this attitude of go on the second date and look for the slow burn, it helps everyone. It helps the people who are getting confused by the spark to actually reprioritize the second date. But obviously it also helps the slow burn people. And I, I wonder if there's any slow burn people on the chat who self-identifies this, if we could actually... Maybe the next time you go on a date with someone and then you follow up, you might say something like, hey, I really enjoyed meeting you. I've gotten the feedback that I don't always, you know, relax on the first date or or, or bring my, you know, I, I don't always present in my best self, but I really like to go out with you again. And as I get more comfortable, like I'd love to show you different sides of myself. And I, I, if I got that text, I would be very intrigued. I'd be like, this person's self-aware. They're self-deprecating in a charming way. And now I'm curious what else is there. And so I would love for some slow burn who's on the call to, to actually to, to, to do that and, and let us know how it goes. I'm going to ask a follow-up question to this kind of general conversation before moving on, um, which is Lindsay um, asked, do you need to be attracted to someone in the beginning? Is this important? So this is kind of the, this, what we're talking about, but maybe just more specific about, about looks and and attraction. Yeah, I I get this question a lot. And I, I honestly, I'm not an expert in the science of attraction. I think that there's a lot to it, but my general response is basically the same thing as fuck the spark. Um, because of the mere exposure effect, because of the difference between unique mate value, uh, between mate value and, and, and unique value, um, these things can grow over time. Uh, as a data point, you know, Kristen was friends with her now, whatever you call him, long-term partner for a year and a half before they committed to each other. Um, I know I knew my now husband for eight years before we started dating. And so there's really attraction is such a broad topic. And and what does it mean to be attracted? Of course, there's people who are just objectively really hot. There are also people where the more you get to know them, you say, wow, they're just so kind, or they're so funny, or I love seeing them with their family. And I can imagine having a family with them. And so I think just being more open-minded and thinking, you know, be more creative, be imaginative, look for someone's beautiful eyes, look for someone's amazing laugh, like kind of go beyond who has the most symmetric face. That's nice. That's great. Um, okay. So we're going to switch gears a little bit to talk to the folks who may be in a relationship right now. Um, so what are maybe two questions here and you can choose the order of which to answer them. What are the misconceptions that people have about good relationships? Um, and then how do you know when you should break up? Okay. Yeah. I'll start with the misconceptions. Um, so one of my favorite chapters in the book is called go for the pro- go for the life partner not the prom date and I talk about how certain people are really fun to date and you know they would make great prom dates and they're attractive and maybe you want to sleep with them at the end of the night but they're not actually the reliable partner that you want to wind up with. And so what are the traits that do that matter more and less than people think for long-term relationship success? And so um the ones that matter but matter less than we think are things like looks and money, because of course these things matter, but because of adaptation, we get used to them and they matter less than we think. The other two are similar personalities and shared hobbies. And people just really over-index on these and they think, oh, you know, I love to drink wine and my partner is not into it. What would we do at night? And that's just so silly. There's so much to life beyond, you know, what you're drinking at dinner and maybe they'll still go to a vineyard with you, right? There's just so much to life beyond these shared hobbies and, you know, two extroverts don't have to be together. Like it's really, that's not correlated with long-term relationship success. The things that are, are things like being able to make hard decisions together, 
loyalty, kindness, a growth mindset. And what has become my favorite and has been reinforced by some of the best relationship science research are things like um, what side of you that person brings out. And so just as people are navigating relationships and they're thinking about who to be with and they're thinking about whether to stay in a relationship, I would just remind them of the stuff that really matters um, in the short term versus what really matters long term and just just opt optimizing for those things. Um, did, did that answer the first question? Do you want me to talk about the breakup thing? No, that's that's great. And I would add, I, th- I think there's a lot of research in behavioral science around behavioral contagion, which is basically like if you're friends with somebody who smokes, you will smoke. And so I think that's kind of what Logan's getting at, which is basically we are who we surround ourselves with. And so if that person, your significant other, doesn't bring out the best in you, that's the side that will come out when you're around them. Um, and so, you know, if you're around people who are more overweight, you'll gain weight. This is kind of a phenomenon. And it's interesting to think of those micro implications that your spouse brings to you if you are just going to merge into them uh, over time. Uh, and maybe this is a good thing and, and maybe it's maybe it's not. Um, so, but if it's not, what should we do? So how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. And just to add to that, I mean, maybe there's people who are sort of rolling their eyes and they're like, yeah, kindness and loyalty, obviously that matters, but I'm telling you my work as a dating coach and matchmaker, people are not walking in the door and being like, I'm looking for emotional stability. And I define it this way and they're getting very distracted by the other things. And so really tuning into the things that I mentioned and really paying attention to what side of you somebody brings out, that's actually how you're going to wind up in the relationship that that lasts for a long time. And that feels good. And there was a nice quote from Jerry Seinfeld about meeting his wife. And he was like, she walked into my house and it just felt like she belonged there. Like it felt like, Oh, of course she would be in my home. And like, she just, he just felt so comfortable around her. Like he already knew her. And I love that idea. It's like feeling like your old friends, feeling that that person already fits into your life. And like, what does that mean about, about what kind of match you are? Yeah. So a lot of my work and original research has been into breakups and it's not something that I ever set out to do when I wanted to focus on the psychology of dating and relationships. But the truth is one of the best ways to get people into great relationships is to sometimes help them get out of mediocre or bad ones. And so I do this unusual role of playing the breakup consultant. And so from time to time, I get these phone calls, usually a friend of a friend and now strangers saying, I've been in this relationship for this long. Here's what's going on. I think I want to end it. What do you think? And so it's really, I I take this role very seriously because, you know, it has consequences for that person. It has consequences for their partner. And yeah, it's, it's, it kind of has some interesting moral and ethical implications, but I have a series of questions that I ask people that first explore what are their historical tendencies? Do they tend to stay in relationships too short or for too long. And so I call the people who stay in relationships for too short, ditchers. And these are people who, I'm sure we know someone like this, after three to six months, they start finding all these problems in the relationships. Oh, it just doesn't feel like the honeymoon period. And they're looking for ways to get out. And one thing that these people are doing is that they don't understand that they are on a path, right? They're on a path towards a bunch of three to six month relationships. And if they just keep doing that without changing their behavior, and if there's someone who wants to be in a long-term partnership eventually, they have to course correct and they have to make a change. And that's why I called the book, How to Not Die Alone. I know that some people find it triggering, but yes, I want to trigger you. I want you to say, what path am I on? And do I need to change direction if I don't like where I'm headed? And so for that ditcher, if you just keep doing the three to six month long relationship, And you keep thinking that uh, if you keep confusing falling in love with being in love, then you're never actually going to get in the other direction. And for the hitcher, these are people who stay in relationships too long. And what's going on for them is sunk cost fallacy, right? They say, I've already spent six years here. Uh, I have to throw good money after bad. And they just, they don't understand that um, just because you've invested in something doesn't mean you have to keep doing that. And they are also you know, suffering from, from loss aversion. They're afraid of losing the relationship they're in and they can't imagine what's waiting for them on the other side of getting over it. And finally, of course, like in many things, there's just status quo bias, path of least resistance, right? So their image of a breakup is that they're on a road and they're driving in one direction and that it would be veering to the right if they were to break up with someone. But I try to present it to them as a, as a, as a T-shaped junction, right? If you turn right, then you're breaking up with someone. If you turn left, then you're staying in a relationship. And either way, you're making a choice. And not only 
are you in that car by yourself? You're actually in that car with someone else. And so if you're not sure if you want to be in there and you think you might end it, then it's actually the kinder, more compassionate thing to do to end it early to save that other person time. And we can get into all this, but of course there's like a gender dynamic and age and fertility. And it's actually an unkind thing to do to spend years waffling because you are wasting somebody else's time. And then finally, there's one last question I ask people in these conversations and it's not scientific. It's not Irrational Labs endorsed, but it's the wardrobe test question. And so I say to people, if your partner were a piece of clothing in your closet, a piece of clothing that you own, what would they be? And I've gotten a range of answers. Sometimes I get things like, my boyfriend is my favorite pair of leggings that are comfortable, but really flattering. Or my girlfriend is my favorite jacket, which I wouldn't have bought for myself, but now I love it. And sometimes I get things like my boyfriend is a scrubby t-shirt that I wear to the gym, but I wouldn't want someone to see me in. Or my boyfriend is a wool sweater that keeps me warm, but then it itches. And so I need to take it off. And there's something about this question that's abstract that helps people kind of take out of the rational brain and move into how they're actually feeling. And it's very powerful when people say this stuff out loud and hear themselves admitting to how they really feel. Um, it's oftentimes an opportunity for hitchers to see, you know, this just isn't the relationship for me. And I've known that for a while and I'm just admitting it to myself. And it's oftentimes for ditchers to say, this feels really good and I'm just scared and I need to invest more. Um, that's that's great. Um, calling out kind of uh, the the idea of forced choice is really interesting. So at the, you know, at the point that you're trying to create a choice architecture system. If folks on the call are behavioral scientists or interested, we kind of understand deeply, you know, there's defaults and there's forced choice. Um, and so Logan's actually just calling out really like we should be de designing our relationships to have more forced choice where there's a yes or a no. And by not making a decision, we actually are making a decision, but sometimes we don't appreciate that that's, that's a decision. I'll also mention that um, somebody asked kind of like, what's the research behind um, some of this? And um, I think this is where it gets pretty exciting and, and Logan's research is, is um, and study of field is really nice because this these are big decisions and behavioral scientists don't study big decisions well. Um, so things like dying, things like marriage, things like do you have a child or not, very hard to control for, <laughs> very difficult to put people into conditions. Um, and so this type of, of thinking is really how do we apply the insights of behavioral science into kind of the, the personal decision-making that we're going through. Um, and if anyone knows of a way to control for breakups, I'm, I'm sure we'd be interested. It's just very difficult. Um, yeah, and I can, I can add one nuance to that, which is um, what I think is original about my book is that it applies the best of two fields. So of course, people on this call are very familiar with behavioral science and decision-making and how I apply that is basically the framework of um, breaking down relationships into a series of decisions, helping people understand the cognitive biases that are misleading them at every step of the way, and then actually applying the behavioral science toolkit to get them to overcome those biases. So for example, I talked about the hesitator and the hesitator is waiting to date. And so when I have this hesitator checklist, it uses things like deadlines work, for these reasons, short deadlines work for these reasons. Here's how to have an accountability buddy. Um, this is why you should or shouldn't share your goal publicly. And then I actually have a chapter about how to break up with someone compassionately. And it applies all of the research from goal setting because one of the most common things is that even if you wanna break up with someone, you actually delay doing it. And so I say, your goal is to break up. Let's take the best of goal setting research and help you actually achieve that. And so there's an example I give in the book where a client of mine wanted to break up with his girlfriend. We created an incentive that this was his idea that if he didn't break up with his girlfriend, he wrote his friend a check for $10,000 to donate to Trump's reelection campaign. And that if he didn't break up with his girlfriend by the date, then that his friend would send the check in. And so we're really applying the tools of behavioral science to help people overcome that intention action gap. And then I'm also pulling from relationship science. And so a lot of people think love is this natural organic thing and we can't study it, but there has been a lot of great psychology research around what separates the relationship masters from the relationship disasters, what does and doesn't matter for long-term relationship success. And so the framework and the angle of the book is behavioral science and a lot of the stuff about relationship 
relationship is pulled from the field of relationship science. Wonderful. Thanks. Um, and so we're going to ask a couple, I'm going to take the mic for only a couple more questions and then we're, we're going to hand it over to you guys. So I've been glancing at the questions, um, and, and we'll pick and choose a few, but if you have some, now is the time to, to post. Um, okay. Another question is dating just a game of numbers or swipe. So how do you think about, uh, how many people that we should be talking to and seeing? Yeah. So there's a lot of directions I can take this question. So one is sometimes people come to my dating coaching and they say, I've been going on one date a week for the last 52 weeks and I haven't met anyone and I'm not attracted to anyone and it never works out and I'm showing up and what am I supposed to do? And so for that person, they're putting in the effort, they're putting in the input, but they're, they're not really finding success. And so for someone like that, it often comes down to their mindset. There's a ton of research about the importance of mindset. And even Kristen, the work that we did with uh, my AdWords three-month program speaks to this, but really mindset matters. And for people who are burnt out on dating, it doesn't matter how many dates you go on. You're not going to show up in a way where you feel attractive, where people are attracted to you. You're just not in a, in a mindset for connection. And so for people like that, I often encourage them to take a break from dating and to actually focus on their mindset before they get back out there. And so for someone like that, it's not just a numbers game because their mindset is getting in the way. For other people who are not going on very many dates, obviously in some ways it is a numbers game and you have to you know, you have to go on more dates. And for someone like that, I would actually encourage them to set a goal of a certain number of dates per week or month. And that that would really apply to the hesitator. But I think what you're also getting at is the part of the book where I talk about how to overcome the maximizer tendency and how to date like a satisficer. And so there's this great thing called the secretary problem. And it's really explained very well in the book, Algorithms to Live By. And I'm going to be pulling some numbers that they use there. So how the secretary problem works for people who aren't familiar with it is imagine that you're hiring a secretary. Imagine you're hiring a secretary and there's 100 possible applicants. You interview them one by one. After each one, you have to say yes or no, and you can't go back. And so the question becomes strategically, how many of them should you interview before you make a decision? And you don't want to wait too long because what if all the good people are at the front? You don't want to make, wait too short because you don't know what else is out there. And so there is a mathematically correct answer to this. And what they found with the secretary problem is that you should interview 37 of the candidates, come up with a benchmark. Who was the single best person among the first 37? Then you keep going. And the next time you find someone who is as good or better than that person who is your meaningful benchmark, you hire that individual. And so if we apply this to dating, we don't know how many people you're possibly going to date. But we might estimate, as they do in Algorithms to Live By, that let's say you date from 18 to 40. So 37%, it's not the number of people, it's now the years you'll date. And so 37% of that range is 26.1 years. And so after 26.1 years, when you're that age, who was the single best person that you dated before? They're now your meaningful benchmark. And you commit to the next person who you like as much or more than that person. And why this is helpful advice to maximizers, and this is genuinely an exercise I do with coaching clients, is it takes it from, I need to see everyone that's out there and then choose the final, the best person to you have probably already dated somebody who would be a great partner. And you just need to identify someone else like that and invest and commit. And it's not about seeing the total set. It's about understanding what matters to you, creating an expectation, and then investing and committing to someone like that. And this has to do with my general philosophy of which relationships, which is that it's not 99% partner selection and 1% effort. It's so much more about the effort that we put in every day. And speaking of the research, that's one of the most reinforced ideas from relationship science is that it's about small things often and that daily effort. Wonderful. It's also, it turns out if you guys missed it, Logan and I live together. And so when you live with other people, it's also about putting in the small effort daily, like unloading the dishwasher and taking out the trash. So these, these probably are general qualities about uh, how to live uh, next to other people that, that are helpful. Um, we have a ton of questions coming in, so I'm going to start taking them and then maybe bounce back and get some of the, the last ones um, that I have for you at the end. Um, and so I'm going to ask folks um, to... Oh, Kristen, are you are you also seeing there's some coming in through the chat and there's some coming in through Q&A? Did you know totally. that? Okay, yeah, that's, okay. wow. that's why I'm overwhelmed. Lots um, of questions. So I'm going to ask Taylor um, if, if 
I don't know if it's a, a Taylor, the male or female or are they, but I will ask uh, if you're okay to uh, say your question out loud. So I'm going to allow you to talk. Um, oops. Great. And if, if you're okay, you can just say it. If not, I, I can also say it for you. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, Taylor. Hi. Uh, my question was, um, how can you look for ideal qualities in a potential relationship on a dating app when you're usually just swiping based on attraction, the photos I select, and just a few pieces of information they decide to share? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I think about all the time. and something that I address in the book. And so I'll start with a story. Back when I started doing matchmaking, I had this form on my website called Logan's List, and it still exists. And people filled out a number of questions, things like, what are you looking for in a partner? Who are you know your celebrity crushes? Um, how would your best friend describe you? What's the best gift you've ever taken? I even asked, you know, how do you feel about Burning Man? Trying to get a proxy for how alternative they were. And what I learned after setting up many couples is that those questions did not matter at all. And they were not helpful at predicting who would be a good match. And I think if you look at the data on um, a lot of dating apps, we know that it's just really hard to predict chemistry and it's really hard to predict what side of you somebody will bring out. I remember I did an interview with uh, Christian Rudder of who started OkCupid. Um, and we were talking about all the questions that OkCupid asks. And he said, and I think this is part of his book, Dataclysm, that despite all the questions they asked, they're really not predictive of matches. And in fact, at the time, he said only one question was even helpful, which is how much do you care about politics? And so what I'm trying to say is that it's really hard when evaluating somebody on an app to know if you'll connect. I think people really make this mistake of overanalyzing the profiles, thinking that they are masters of reading between the lines. And this is where I say date like a scientist and be more humble. Assume that you really won't know what side of you somebody brings out until you're with them. And so just try to go on the date as soon as possible. And like the texting, the nonstop texting, that's not helpful. That just creates a fantasy in your mind. And so A, to date like a scientist, you should be more open-minded going on dates with more types of people and not assuming that this two-dimensional presentation of someone in the dating app is that good of a representation of who they are. And two, um, you should get to the date as soon as possible to actually assess it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks, Taylor. Great. I think I'm going to ask um, Erica also, I'm going to take... Taylor off and then ask Erica if she's willing to ask her question because it kind of goes along with it. So I just want to kind of bundle some questions. Right. So um, sorry, will I promote you guys? Erica, I'm finding your name. So if you want to get your question ready, um, there we go. There's a couple Erica, so I bet a lot of Erica's are, are freaking out right now, but I'll, I'll do the one who, <laughs> who actually asked the question. So um, there we go. Erica, you're able to chat if you if if you want to. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. So so there are so many users on dating apps, and what is the best strategy to sort them out? Um, because I get a lot of likes, and I don't know. I don't know how to find the most suitable and potential ones. So that's my question. If there's a strategy. Sure. Yeah. Um, in the book, I talk a lot about the paradox of choice. Obviously, this is a very well-known concept in, in psychology and pop psychology, um, but it, it is, it is a, a very relevant dynamic into modern dating. And so the idea that when you have too many choices, it makes you doubt your choices, feel depressed about your choices, or perhaps make no choice at all. Um, when I was researching the book, I would have these accountability dinners where people would give me feedback on different chapters. And I had one dinner where this guy was there and he said, I'm a 44-year-old divorced Indian man. This is not my problem. I do not have the problem of too many choices. I am trying to get more people to actually respond to me and I send tons of messages and just don't get a lot of success. And that was actually a great moment for me to understand that the paradox of choice is the dynamic for some people, but not for others. And so I worked on adding not only more inclusivity to the book and, and that guy came on as my DEI consultant for the project, but also just understanding that just as a base level, if paradox of choice is your problem in some ways, then that's kind of a problem of privilege. The next thing I would say is that um, 
it's really important to understand that if you're going on too many dates, um, you can really overwhelm yourself. It can be hard to keep track of the different dates. You can start comparing people based on the wrong things. And so, um, Chris and one of our mutual friends had this rule that she would only date three people at a time and she would actually sort of hold herself to that. And by date, she just means like engage in a serious way with talking to them and, and maybe, um, going on dates with them. And so some of it is creating your own limitations. But I think what I would do is in the beginning, I would do the date like a scientist open-minded thing and say, this isn't the type of person I would normally say yes to, but I'm going to give them a try and I'm going to get more information. And then over time, as you get to know different dynamics that you get to know that age doesn't matter to you, but sense of humor really does, then you will just really be able to get more specific about what matters. And so I just want to say paradox of choice is a very relevant dynamic. It absolutely be, can be confusing, but you can take control of it by creating your own rules of thumb around how many people you engage with, um, what metrics you measure on, and even just limiting your own time on the app so that you're not creating a feeling of overwhelm or burnout. Can you still hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, how many people would you advise to date at once? Because my friends are <laughs> giving me hard time. <laughs> like... <laughs> telling me that I shouldn't date too many guys at once. I think that the first part of that is what does date mean? I mean, I think some people that might mean who are you messaging on the app? Some people that might mean who are you going on first dates with? For some people that might mean who are you sleeping with? And so it's kind of depends on your definition. And this is kind of the part where I say it's an art and a science. There is no black and white rule. Depends on your own extroversion level. Depends how much time you have. It depends how you know fun or frustrating you find this. There's also, and I see a lot of questions coming in through the chat about dating during the pandemic. And Kristen, we should probably do that next. But There's also a safety element, right? There's 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 sexual safety and, and STIs. There's conversations around monogamy and exclusivity, conversations around COVID safety and, and COVID protocol. And so there's no one rule of thumb. But what I would suggest here is understanding how many people can you talk to and really invest in them? How many people can you go on, on a date with and keep track of them and understand them? How can you do this? Not so that you're comparing each person so that you're actually having a meaningful experience with each one. And so, yes, there's no hard and fast rule, but I would say err on the side of not too many, because I don't think that you're actually going to show up and be as present as you would if there were fewer people involved. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Erica. Great. And yes, um, folks uh, are asking how do you how do you do this when you're not really supposed to be by lots of people how do you date in a pandemic logan yeah i mean this is where i'm lucky that i work at hinge because i have access to to millions of people you know dating experience and we do a lot of surveys and i started at hinge last march and basically my first week at the company was when the pandemic really hit new york and so our first project was video dating and throughout the last 10 months we've been actively observing what dating looks like in the pandemic. And the, the the facts are that there are some clear pros and cons. And I think I want to start with the cons so that um, I'm not just, you know, blowing sunshine. But yeah, obviously it's hard if you can't meet up in person. Obviously you can't flirt in the same way. You can't make eye contact in the same way. You can't touch their arm. You can't, you know, get drunk together. There's all these things that just are part of normal dating that don't necessarily get to happen. And it also just adds a layer of anxiety and stress. I feel like in so many of my interactions, people are just on edge right now. So we know from the Hinge data that people are feeling more anxious than ever generally and more anxious than ever about dating. And that's just, it, it makes it hard to have that open-minded mindset that helps you connect. Um, but let me tell you some of the positives. So first of all, video dating is very popular. At the beginning of the pandemic, almost no one had tried it. And now a Now around 50% of Hinge users have tried a video date. And I was I was doubtful about video dating. I remember I had a conversation with the Hinge CEO where I was like, I just don't like video dating. People are going to focus on the spark. People are going to say, oh, after five minutes, I just didn't feel anything. And they're going to write someone off. And it was kind of, you know, it went against my fuck the spark and go on the second date rule. But I really have been proven wrong. I think people are finding that this is a really effective way to get to know someone. And so when we ask people, why haven't you why haven't you tried a video date? The number one thing they say is, I think it'll be awkward. But 81% of Hinge users who have tried a video date rank it as not at all awkward. And so 
you know, your expectations of it just, just may be off if you're someone who's waiting to do this. And many of our video dates last over an hour. If people are having these long meandering conversations and there's really a lot of depth to them, and that's another silver lining is that people are not distracted by being in a busy restaurant and having people go by and, you know, you can't hear the server and all of these different things. And so people are really going deep and there's an opportunity to get to know someone. And so for some people, it actually plays to their strength. And maybe that's the last kind of pandemic dating tip that I'll give is that we know it's hard to change behavior. We know that people are very set in their ways and it takes sometimes an extreme jolt to the system for people to make a shift. And, you know, whether it's the research on moving is a good time to, to change your behavior, you know, there's lots of different research on this. Well, the pandemic was also a jolt to our system, right? Many people lost their jobs. Many people moved home. Many people just have a very different life than they did 10 years ago. And while that there are many challenges there, it also presents the opportunity to develop new behaviors. And I have seen not a small number of people who were notoriously single, always jumping from first date to first date or whatever their bad habit was. And because of the pandemic, they had to adopt new behaviors, things like dating one person at a time and really investing them or not assuming the next person is one swipe away. And so treating everyone as not a priority. And, and I know people who have gotten into relationships, really healthy and successful ones during the pandemic, because it was that jolt to the system that they needed to change their behaviors and adopt a better one. And so um, at Hinge, we're seeing research that people are being more selective in their matches. They are taking themselves more seriously. They are doing what we call intentional dating. And we've seen a lot of great relationships come out of the fact that people are changing their behavior. And Joe wants us to know she can vouch for video dating. It works. Wonderful. And actually, maybe I'll put you on the spot here, but I'll put everybody on the spot here. Is there one question that, that you think people could ask or like a fun question that you should ask somebody during a, a video date? And maybe we'll ask Logan, but also if anyone else has used a fun question that they want to share with everyone else, maybe uh, drop it in the chat to share your, your learnings. Yeah, I can speak to that. And so one of my pieces of advice is just maybe if you're nervous, just start the date and be like, this is my first time doing one of these, or I feel kind of awkward. And you don't want to talk about the pandemic the whole time, but it kind of just creates this sense of connection where the other person's like, I feel really awkward too. Like, can you hear me? Is my Zoom working or FaceTime, whatever. And so just starting from a place of connection and of shared experience can be really powerful. Um, I talked about the pros and cons. So one pro is that there are different things that you can do when you're on a video date. So one of them is give them a tour of your apartment, show them some quirky stuff in your fridge. What are your favorite sauces? Show them your cat, right? And so if you're comfortable with that, that's actually a way that you can use this new medium of video dating to your advantage. That's that's awesome. Thanks. Um, and if you guys have questions that you ask, we have uh, someone saying, Natasha, favorite question, what have you geeked out on lately? Could have, And it could be TV, books, hobbies, et cetera. Thanks. Uh, and anyone else want to share their, their hot tips for questions? That would be great. Um, let's switch to Carly. Um, Carly King, if we can we can bring you up. It's kind of like the price is right, and we're, we're going to bring you up on the... Um, here, let me try to find you. You asked a, a nice question that I bet others are also interested in. And be before Carly goes, I would add one thing, which is Kristen is the queen of the no small talk party. She has her no small talk cards, which you can order. And this is one of my key tips for a great date, whether in person or virtual is skip the small talk. It doesn't lead to connection. It's boring. You're just repeating the same stuff you always say. And so whatever that question is that you asked, try it to have it not be how many siblings do you have? What neighborhood do you live in? You know, stuff about work and actually get to something that makes someone think and really be in the moment and leads to connection. Yeah, that's, that's great. Kind of having a, a vulnerable uh, interaction, kind of mutually uh, mutual vulnerability. So not just somebody sharing, but both people sharing uh, has been shown to, to drive connection. So, and, um, and Sarah said, what did you want to do or become when you were a kid? I think that's a great one. Nice. That's great. Yeah, talk, talk, the hot tips um, from some of the stuff we learned is asking people about their past and their future. Um, so thinking about their childhoods and, and where they want to go. Okay, Carly, um, you're up. Great. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, my question was, I liked the bit about um, 
the the question about the numbers game and that the mindset is important to date. So it's not always a numbers game if, if you don't have the right mindset. And I also feel like I and many people I know have heard different versions of that before, like, you know, work on your mindset, focus on yourself um, and have been doing that for months and years in some cases and still have not had success. And I know there's not a two minute answer, but what, in your opinion, are, you know, we we missing in that that part of it? Yeah. And first of all, I don't want to enter into the territory of cliches, right? Be your best self, show your best self, right? That's not helpful. And what does that even mean? Um, In the book, I do try to be very practical and very specific. And so, for example, when I talk about the mindset, I have a series of activities that help you shift your mindset. So the first one is the pre-date ritual. And so this is the idea that the date doesn't just start when you turn on your FaceTime or when you show up to the coffee shop, it actually starts hours before when you say, who am I going to be when I enter? And so one very practical tip is let's say that you have a work Zoom from 5 to 6 p.m. Do not schedule your date for 6.05 p.m. and do not do it on Zoom because if you do that, it will feel like you are going from one work meeting to the next. And so just a small practical tip is, you know, do it on FaceTime, do it on something else and give yourself some time in between the end of the workday and the beginning of the date. And what a pre-date ritual might look like is taking a bath, going on a walk listening to a podcast, listening to a pump-up playlist, calling a friend, something that actually gets you into the positive mindset. Then on the date, actually doing things that are fun. And so I feel like when I look at what most first dates look like, they look more like job interviews than dates. And then people say, oh, I didn't feel a spark. It's like, yes, because you were interrogating somebody, you were interviewing them for the role of your spouse, you weren't actually connecting. And so the next part is designing dates that actually lead to connection. Those are things like adding back play. I like to say play, don't play games. What play might look like is you know meeting up in Golden Gate Park and running around and petting five dogs. Um, going to different taco stands. What are things that you can do that are playful and are not just uh, let me download your resume from you? Um, And then the last thing is that we know with research from gratitude journals that um, you can actually shift how somebody acts throughout the day by giving them an assignment about what to do at night. So with gratitude journals, if you have to write down three things at the end of the day that you're grateful for, throughout the day, you'll be looking for them. And so I have this exercise called the post-date eight and these are things that after the date you you answer on your way home or you know when you when you hang up the video date and there are things like what side of me did this person bring out how did my body feel when i was interacting with them the point of these questions is that on the date they help you actually tune in to um the the stuff that matters and takes you out takes you from that evaluative mindset to the experiential mindset. And so those are three practical tips that will help these dates go better. But kind of to your meta question Yes, mindset is everything. I'm hearing from you that you feel like you've been doing the self-work. You feel like you have the mindset and it hasn't worked. And mindset is not you know, the only answer. Oftentimes the people that I work with, there's a series of things holding them back. And so I would point you and other people to the quiz on my website about the three dating tendencies because there's likely something there that is sort of a dating a dating blind spot um, that's, that's holding people back. And kind of my, my final tip here is that I am calling these blind spots. And so if you want to know what's going on for you, one of the most reliable ways is to ask your best friend and you have to make it safe for them to give you feedback. This is something Kristen and I talk about all the time in our, in our friendships, but say to them, Hey, you know, it's 2021. I want to find someone I've been putting all the effort in. It's not working. Do you have a sense of something that I'm doing that's pushing people away or holding me back? And I'm not going to hold it against you. I just really want to know what you think. And when I've helped people have these conversations with their friends, they hear you're too picky. You're not picky enough. Um, you write people off because they wear socks with sandals and you know, that doesn't matter. And just really understanding that there might be things going on that you don't have access to, and then making a, a specific and actionable plan to start tackling that. But anyway, I just want to couch this, this answer in empathy. And I know that dating is really hard, especially right now. And I don't have all the answers, but I am trying to help people become more self-aware and more intentional. Well, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. That's great, Carla. That was a great question. Um, We're getting to the end. So Logan's probably not gonna be able to get to all of your questions. I think that's why she wrote a book. There's too much for one one webinar here, but um, I'm gonna maybe bring it back to just kind of 
if you were to like have people walk away, we'll have a couple more questions after this, but um, if you were to have people walk away with one tip for single people, so let's, let's say 75% of the people listening are single and you could force them to do one thing or think differently about one thing. Um, what, what do you think that should be uh, at the end of this webinar? Yeah, I think really just going off the last question, like what what can you do to become more self-aware about your dating patterns? Maybe ask your best friend, maybe take the quiz on my website, maybe make a spreadsheet where you say, what are my last 10 people I've dated? Why did What did I like about them? What did I not like? Um, why did we break up? And just really start to become like a better, really invest in pattern recognition in your own past relationships. And so doing that self audit, I think can be really empowering to people because instead of looking at the world and saying, why has love worked out for everyone except me? What's wrong with me? And sort of this feeling of, of self-doubt, you can actually empower yourself by saying, okay, I know what's holding me back and I'm going to tackle it in these specific ways. And a lot of it does go back to those three tendencies and unrealistic expectations around different things. That's really nice. So um, in behavioral science, basically a lot of our decisions are made very intuitively and quickly. And um, in these kind of big decisions with dating and, you know, having a kid and buying a home, we actually get to like reflect and think and think about pros and cons and be a little bit more rational. Um, and so it seems like some of the suggestions is just like take advantage of the idea that you can stop and think and evaluate um, and really understand your decision-making versus kind of rushing into something in an intuitive fashion. Um, okay. And then, um, one, one more question. Um, basically this is, what is it a pet peeve that you have about, uh, either people in relationships, um, or, um, people who are dating that, uh, when they come to you and, and it can be something you've already mentioned cause you've covered so many, so many topics. Oh, that's really fun. That'll be a fun one to end on. And so I want to take it in a slightly different direction, which is actually, I find that concept of pet peeves very annoying because I think that it often confuses people in dating. And so in the book, I talk about the difference between a deal breaker and a PPP, a permissible pet peeve. So I had this experience. I was at a networking event. This woman found out what I did and she said, I'm so open-minded. I'll date anyone unless they're a mouth breather. And I was just like, what is mouth breathing like such a big deal? And she's like, oh, it's just so annoying. And I was just like, maybe she thinks this is like a very quirky thing to say, but you know, just clearly there's no research that says that mouth breathing is correlated with negative relationships. And so for her, she was confusing a pet peeve with a deal breaker. And I see a lot of people doing that. And so part of the work is to understand what are your true deal breakers. And so if you want to have kids and you're dating someone who doesn't, that is a real deal breaker. If you want to raise those kids in a religion and your partner wants to raise them in a different one, that's a real deal breaker. You know, how are you going to manage um, finances and how are you going to manage who's working and who's not? Like those are real important conversations to have and they could lead to deal breakers. But so many of the things that people think really matter, like even some of the stuff I talked about, right? So having the same hobbies or loving sports, like maybe that's a preference you have, but someone not having it, it's likely not a deal breaker. In terms of uh, my pet peeve um, would probably be what I said before, which is somebody coming to my office and saying, I know exactly who I'm looking for, right? So this guy who said, I want a six foot four business executive, um, who's very masculine and has the following traits. And I, I, I don't need any help figuring that out. I just need your help finding that person. And so I've had people come to me with these, these spreadsheets of every quality and every trade and their, their top of funnel strategies for finding these people. And I really try to help them take a step back and say, can you be more humble? Can you understand that you may be surprised by the type of person who makes you happiest long-term? And can we actually be more open-minded in our search as opposed to thinking you know exactly who you want to be with and it's just a, a, a search at this point? Nice. That's great. So in behavioral science checklist work, but um, more for like if you're going into surgery. So some of the advice is not to be surgical for your for your dating life. <laughs> Or no, no. I, I mean, I love that point. I love the checklist manifesto. And so the point is more have a checklist around what you're going to do to overcome your bad habits, throw out the checklist about the so-called type that you need to find. Love it. Uh, okay. Anything in closing that you want to uh, impart on, on these folks? And we just put a, I just put a link to your, to the book, um, to buy the book, review the book, all the, all the yeah. things. I mean, you know, Kristen, just thanks for the opportunity. Really fun to chat with you. Um, yeah, people can buy the book on Amazon, How to Not Die Alone. 
Um, they can follow me on Instagram or Twitter at Logan Yuri. And there's going to be a few conversations in Clubhouse if people are into that. So you can follow me there at Logan. And yeah, just in general, I hope that um, people can really do one thing today to invest in their dating or in their relationship. So if you're single, how can you start that audit? How can you start that process of self-awareness? And if you're in a relationship, then what is one thing that you can do today to show your partner that you appreciate them? And Kristen, I appreciate you. So thanks I a lot. I appreciate you too. Thank you so much for, for doing this with us. Um, and thanks everyone for, for attending. We will um, send out a link to folks who attended with the uh, link to the book and other things that Logan mentioned. So talk to you all soon and go forth and, and date well. Date like a scientist. That's what I meant to say. Woohoo. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye guys. Hey, thanks for listening. And for those of you listening in real time, happy Valentine's Day. thought this was an appropriate episode to drop around Valentine's Day. And I also wanted to mention that if you resonated with the part about mindset and changing your mindset, if you've tried different things that haven't worked for you when it comes to dating or relationships or even sex, I really encourage you to take the free training that Jason and I offer at evolutionary.men slash training. It's a deeper dive than we're able to do on the podcast. So if you're at all interested in the work that we do, I would really encourage you to take that, especially if you've been trying the same thing and not getting results in your dating life. It might be time to take action and maybe get some mentorship. And then again, just to as a reminder, this book that she references that she wrote that Logan wrote is called How to Not Die Alone, and it's available on Amazon right now.